You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Tesla adds Bitcoin to its corporate treasury. The U.S. 30-year yield is now above 2%, and the XLF financial sector uh, ETF is now above its 2007 highs. There's so much to talk about it, and I'm very glad to be joined by Real Vision Managing Editor Ed Harrison to break it all down. Ed, how are you doing? Very good. Uh, Jack, let's get right into it. Let's get right into it. So with the first story, um, we have Tesla Motors announcing in its annual report today that it uh, added $1.5 billion worth of Bitcoin to its policy. Uh, and it also indicates that it is it will plans on accepting Bitcoin as a form of payment. Um, Bitcoin uh, surged to uh, new highs um, to, to 43, uh, excuse me, Bitcoin surged to new highs to $43,000. Uh, Ed, what do you make of this? Yeah, I even saw 44,000. I think it's very interesting. I was talking to Lynn Alden today. This is a interview that's going to appear in the platform on Thursday and asked her what she thought about it because she follows the crypto space very closely. And her view is, is that it's a positive thing by and large. You're not going to see Procter & Gamble, she says, uh, do this move anytime soon. But at a minimum, you could see more adoption by other corporates into the crypto space, specifically Bitcoin, as a result of this. They'll be thinking about it again as a result of Elon Musk being sort of a first mover. He's probably the third mover. There's Michael Saylor who did this, uh, another company that Len mentioned that I can't remember, and then now Tesla as well. The big thing is in terms of the announcement, in terms of accepting Bitcoin as payment, it's all about the volatility at this point in time. You know, once the volatility slows down, once you have more adoption, then you'll get more adoption. So it's a bit of a chicken and an egg in terms of getting that uh, getting that happening. And it's just a matter of time as long as the volatility goes down. That's the key, key difference here. Right. I think it's important uh, for the Bitcoin ecosystem for people to actually use it as a currency, as a medium of exchange, rather than just as uh, an investment, because that way it will, it will increase the velocity. Um, so, Ed, it's interesting now, uh, if you look at the market cap of Tesla to Bitcoin, they've been sort of racing off each other uh, over the past year. Uh, Bitcoin now is at uh, $700 billion, whereas Tesla is at $820 billion. Um, which do you think is going to reach a trillion dollars first? <laughs> that's funny. If, if only I knew, you know, that that's... Uh... That's the trillion dollar coin question, just to create a pun there. I have, I have no idea, but uh, it is interesting that you say that they're playing off of each other. The question is, is whether or not the dynamics underlying both of those markets are the, are the same. I don't know if they are. I think that there is a degree to which they are the same. They're representative of people chasing assets higher, but in certain other ways, they represent opposites in the sense that Tesla represents a a, uh, a a new future in terms of people chasing an asset higher because they're bullish on the overall economy and where things are going. 
Whereas, you know, supposedly cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, it's supposed to represent a hedge against what the the Fed and what, uh, you know, fiscal policy is doing to the dollar and to inflation. That is very interesting because um, what the, the, the money printing that is destroying the dollar and your assets, I guess if you own bonds, but if you if you own equities, uh, the money printing over the past year has been a huge bonanza. So I think um, what what you're saying, we've talked about this before, is that perhaps Bitcoin is a little bit more correlated to the traditional financial world uh, than some may claim, especially as it continues to evolve. Um, but Ed, I want to play a little bit of a game with you because today on the Real Vision Daily Briefing, we're mixing things up a little bit. So I'm going to read from the Tesla 10K what they said about uh, their decision to buy Bitcoin. And it's sort of in lawyer speak, in accountant speak. And then you're going to tell me what that means in uh, real, real person language, right? Okay. Okay. That sounds great. Okay, great. So in January, quote, in January 2021, we updated our investment policy to provide us with more flexibility to further diversify and maximize returns on our cash that is not required to maintain uh, adequate operating liquidity. As part of the policy, we may invest a portion of such cash in certain specified alternative reserve assets. What does that mean, Ed? That basically means that normally we put all of our money in dollars, but, you know, just so you know, we're going to say it's a positive thing that we're putting some of that money in Bitcoin. We're not taking a flyer. We're not a speculator on Bitcoin uh, in case you want to sue us because you don't like the fact that we put we took $1.5 billion of dollars and put them into Bitcoin. We're doing it because it's an alternative asset. So it's a bit of a CYA as in this is an alternative asset class. It's not a flyer. We're not speculators. We're not chasing the market higher. Right. Um, Ed, there's a lot more that we can analyze it, but we actually have to move on to the next topic um, because in this version of the Real Vision Daily Briefing, we're, we're switching things up where we're, we're, we're moving really quickly. Um, so let's, let's go into the Treasury yield. So um, the US 30 Treasury yields uh, briefly hit over 2% um, today. You can't see it in the chart because it's a long-range chart, um, but that, you know, that is a big deal. We, it's basically approaching pre-coronavirus uh, uh, levels, likewise with the ten-year. So um, over the over the past few months, and you know, since uh, the the depths of the crisis, we've seen uh, yields rise, especially on the long end of the curve. What does that mean, Ed? Yeah, I think it's very interesting. One is, is that you can look at the ten-year. The other is that you can look at the thirty-year in terms of thinking of how you're thinking about it. Ultimately, what you're thinking about is you're thinking about yield curve steepening because the we know from the forward guidance from the Federal Reserve that the short end is pegged to zero and it will remain pegged for a certain period of time. And so to the degree that you're going to see steepening in the curve, it's going to happen as a result of the longer end of the curve going up and the Fed basically allowing that to happen. How far they'll allow that to happen, how far it can go up, uh, that's a good question. That's an open question. The reason is because there's a certain reflexivity there that people think exists. I was actually talking to Lynn Alden about that. Uh, there are two ways that you can look at it. One is how quickly uh, can rates rise before it has a negative effect on long duration uh, instruments like uh, companies where the discounted cash flows are weighted towards uh, future cash flows as opposed to present cash flows. And the other question is, is how far up, what's the absolute level that you need to get to? In the past, 
uh, what we saw was is that the 10-year got to 120 before the market started to show a lot of gyrations. It got to the 119 level in some. It's been pushing up against that level. And when I look at my uh, chart here for the 10-year, what I'm seeing is 117.2. So it tried to push up against the 118, 119 level again, and then it receded and came back. But at the same time, the 30-year in the U.S. is still uh, you know, making that march higher as well. It's also meeting resistance and pushing back. So the levels I'm looking at on my chart are 117 right now and 195. So I think those are crucial levels to understand whether or not we're breaking out and then whether or not that's going to have any sort of negative impact on long-duration assets. So 120 on the 10-year, 2% on the 30-year. Those are levels. If you end the day above those levels, it's saying that potentially we've broken out to a new range, and that could have some effect on near-term volatility in the markets. Right. Uh, Ed, you mentioned that uh, as yields rise, that puts pressure on particularly equities that have their discounted cash flows projected well into their future, uh, which is a, basically a fancy word for saying growth stocks. So your Zooms, your Pelotons, uh, your Teslas, I might add. So that's how it affects the growth versus value dynamic. Um, how else would you say that rising yields impact uh, various financial relationships within assets, uh, within the investment landscape? I think that you have to look at the housing market in particular, and you have to look at overall leverage within the system, because ultimately, you know, we're a very levered up economy. There's only so much additional debt that people can take on. You know, the U.S. government, they are a monetarily sovereign uh, entity, and as a result, they can basically, they're basically issuing IOUs. That's what dollars are. They're government IOUs. So they can they can create an infinite number of IOUs. You and I, we can't do that. So when interest rates go up, we have to cry uncle. And then that means that there's a certain level at which interest rates can go up to where the interest payments are enormous or exorbitant for us. And then therefore, uh, it, it, it creates uh, stress. And, uh, and I think that we're going to get to those levels at some point in time, potentially, uh, and no one knows where those levels are and how quickly we have to get to some level before that happens. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Right. Uh, Ed, as these yields sell off, what that means when a, when, a yield, uh, when a yield rises, that means that the bond is selling off. And when a bond sells off, it simply means that selling is prevailing over buying. Um, what, who is doing that selling? Is it investors who are selling bonds in order to uh, you know, reach into corporate credit and other riskier assets like equities? Um, is it them? It can't be the Fed, right? Because the, the Fed is plowing 120 uh, uh, billion in uh, in mortgage-backed securities and treasuries into the market every every month. So it's, it's investors, right? I would say the answer for me, almost 95% of the time, is for every seller there's a buyer. For every buyer there's a seller. So I wouldn't, you know, in terms of the flows into and out of the market, I think it's more the price 
than anything else. That is, is, is that, you know, how much am I buying it for? And what's the reason for my wanting to buy it at that level? Uh, as, as the, as the yields go higher, uh, and therefore the, the, the numbers go down, it's not because people are coming into or out, coming out of the market per se. It's more that there are fundamental factors which are causing people to believe that uh, higher yields are necessary. It could be inflation. It could be uh, fiscal policy uh, causing people to think that there's inflation. There are a lot of different factors involved in that. Uh, and usually I don't look at the supply demand dynamics. I think about what are the fundamental uh, impacts on the economy. Right. Uh, Ed, one key financial relationship that I want to draw attention to is the impact of rising yields on banks. Now, banks like high yields because they are the lender, and that means that they make more money. Um, and as yields have, have risen uh, over the past, say, six months, we've seen the XLF financial sector spider fund rise with it. And as a matter of fact, uh, that fund, uh, XLF, today peaked uh, it reached its uh, its levels of 2007. So it, it's reached an all-time highs, highs which had not been reached um, until 2007, which which obviously was the year before the great financial crisis. Um, what do we make of that? Yeah, so I think it's interesting that, uh, you know, generally speaking, uh, banks, they like higher spreads, but it's not clear to me where they stand in terms of their desire for low or high uh, absolute nominal yields. Uh, interestingly, I was looking, uh, just as you were speaking, at some information that came out late uh, January when Bank of New York Mellon reported their earnings. Uh, they were saying trust banks like the Bank of New York Mellon. They've been uh, particularly notable, noticeable issues uh, when rates are close to the zero bound because what happens is, is that their um, their fee income goes down, and so they get hurt by that. So I think that there are two effects that banks are looking at: yield effect, the absolute yield on the um, the economy. And I, I'm more uncertain about what that means for bank earnings. And then there's the spread that is is that the steepness of the curve, so they can uh, lend and then they can borrow at different rates. The bigger that spread is, the better it is for them in terms of their net interest margins. And so a steep yield curve is favoring the banks. Uh, I think the jury's still out as to whether or not uh, higher rates in general will help the banks. But when you have rates pegged at zero and the yield curve is steepening, de facto, that's very positive for banks in general. Because uh, you're as low as you can get on the, on the short end and you're steepening at the same time, that's the most bullish uh, economic scenario. And if you add in the potential for uh, fewer loan loss reserves, you have a very good um, outcome for banks. So for me, sector-wise, there is very good reason to think that banks are at their highest level since 2007. Right. Uh, Ed, what's your outlook on uh, banks generally? Because Obviously, it was it was a bonanza uh, before the great financial crisis. Then you had a, a tremendous uh, uh, plummeting, and since then the growth has been slow as, as regulation, like Dodd Frank, has uh, regulated and, and limited the amount of risky activity that tends to be very profitable. 
Um, you know, I'm also looking at companies like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and JP Morgan, I might add, that have outperformed, you know, these investment, ba investment banks that have outperformed over the past year, um, Bank of America, US Bank. So you're seeing that these investment banks, um, particularly Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, um, that generate uh, fees from trading and, and investment banking, that is seen as more viable than the, you know, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lend to, you know, Ed, you're going to deposit money at, at my bank, and then I'm going to give that to lend that money to a mortgage, to give someone a mortgage. Um, that sort of commercial banking, or I, sh I should say consumer banking, is typically not seen as that profitable. Um, so, you know, what's your, out I know I'm, I'm tossing you the, such an uh, open-ended question, but what's, what's your outlook on, on banks generally? Where, where do you think we go from here? I think it all depends on these relationships that we're talking about. Um, there was an interesting um, uh, piece on the New York Fed's website. They're, they have a blog site uh, called Liberty Street Economics back in 2017, and they were talking about uh, what to make of this new lower for longer phenomenon. And uh, I'm just looking at one of their uh, charts that they put up on net interest margins versus the term spread from 91 to 2016. And th what they saw is, is that the chart that they put up showed that the term spread this is the net, you know, the uh, the steepness of the yield curve are weakly positively correlated both over the full period that they were looking at and over the uh, three sub periods, which are 91 to 2000, 2001 to 8, and then 209 to uh, uh, 2016. But they did say that net interest margins were lower during the low for longer period of 2009 to 2016. Uh, they were lower than they were in the uh, in the earlier years, even when the term spread was the same. So what does that mean? To me, it means that even though uh, we're getting the spread going up, the term spread is increasing, the yield curve is steepening, the fact that we're pinned at zero cannot be good for the banks over the long term. And, and so... Uh, I, I would tend to think that when we think about uh, whether or not being pended zero is bad or good, it is true from historical analysis that higher rates are better for the banks as well as a larger term spread. And since we're not going to leave the zero lower bound, there is a cap on how much excess you can get for the banks. We're going to get it during the cyclical phase of the economy, but to the degree that we're turning more Japanese, meaning that uh, we're going to go back into sort of a secular stagnation period, then you're going to have things roll over. The curve will flatten, and you'll also be at the zero lower bound at the same time, and you'll see the margins for banks compress, and they'll never uh, reach escape velocity. So I would tend to say that uh, this is a cyclical uh, play, and that it really depends on what the economic outcome is on the on the backside of the of the the post vaccine reopening. If it's like what Richard Koo told me uh, in Friday's interview, uh, you know, more uh, balance sheet recession, deleveraging type of thing, then the banks are not a good play after this initial pop. And I would be very cautious about uh, getting leveraged up to them. Right. Uh I think that the, just the upside is so limited. If there is no insolvency, um, if spreads continue to widen, you're, you're, uh, the, just the upside is, is not there, um, like it is for an Apple, a Google, or, or some other uh, you know, risky product, I, I might add. 
um, Bitcoin. And uh, actually, Ed, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, the sort of effect of uh, the yield curve on banks. And it sounds like you've done a deep dive on it. I've done a little bit of a deep dive on it as well. Um, because I did a video with uh, Real Vision's Nick Correa on quantitative easing, and, and a central banker who happens to be a, a Real Vision member who's very well steeped in the field said, "Actually, Jack, you um, uh, you didn't quite get this uh, interest rate risk in the bank book or IRRBB." Um, so I was looking through the like uh, annual filings of Wells Fargo and J.P. Morgan, I believe, and what I was expecting was that it is all about the spread from. Uh, that, that banks like it when the, uh, short-term yields go down and they like it when long-term yields go up. Actually, it is exactly like you said, that um, they, like, they like them to go up no matter where they are in maturity. Um, they like them more to go up in the long end, but they definitely don't like uh, short-term rates um, decreasing. I, I will add, though, that this isn't, that's just what the banks uh, said their net exposure was. Net of all of these probably hundreds of billions of dollars worth of um, hedging that, that, that banks do um, because they own bonds that do well when interest rates decrease. But then they also, uh, you know, th their future uh, depends on uh, a, a wide net interest margin. So you have these two um, sort of opposing forces. Um, I, I also want to say that the, the XLF, I believe, doesn't, it's, it's a very traditional index. It has, you know, JP Morgan, US Bancorp, all of these, uh, Goldman Sachs, all of these um, investment banks, commercial banks. But it, I don't believe it. I don't think it has companies like uh, Venmo or, or PayPal, which owns Venmo or Visa or Mastercard. I think those are techno, you know, um, uh, uh, categorized in the technology sector. I think uh, you know you look at the underperformance of the banks, and it's easy to see XLF has not done well. But I think if they had had a Mastercard or a PayPal or even God forbid a, a Bitcoin in there, a little just a tiny little bit, I think the XLF would have done a lot better. When you say. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. So, I mean, you know, you can even look at uh, what's happened with the Goldman Sachs of the world, the Morgan Stanleys, and say the JP Morgans, and compare that to the underperformance that we saw at Bank of America, uh, uh, Bank of New York Mellon, as an example. The, the, you know, Bank of New York Mellon, Trust Bank, uh, Bank of America, more traditional bank. Basically, they've underperformed because rates are at zero. And the reality is, is that banks don't make as much money when interest rates are lower. Um, I think that the data have proven that even though it, we still don't know, uh, you know, where the banks want want the the numbers to be, what they would prefer is as if you know we pump money into the economy, get the economy goosed up, you know, get off the zero lower bound. And the yield curve stays, uh, you know, uh, steep enough so that they can earn net interest margin and also, you know, benefit from the fee income associated with the higher yield. Will we get there? Uh, that's the $64 million question, because ultimately, uh, I think everything it depends upon what the trajectory is after the initial pop from the reopening. That's when we'll see whether or not, you know, Apple at 40 times earning, uh, 40 times earnings is is a good number. That's when we'll see whether or not uh, the yield curve uh, with a 10 year at two percent is is a good number. But until we get there, it's all speculation. We're all waiting until we get to that moment, and hopefully that moment will come in 2021. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. 
Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yes, uh, I hope so too. Ed, I want to switch gears here and move to uh, talk about something that, that's not something that's in the news cycle outside of Real Vision, but that's actually something within Real Vision. And uh, it's a series of interviews that we're going to be doing over the next two weeks. Um, Raul kicked it off with, with his expert view today is everything a bubble? Um, but we really, we wanted, we wanted to get Ral's opinion, but we wanted to get the best investors in the world. So over the next two weeks, uh, I don't know if the folks at home know this, but they will after, after watching this, that we're going to be speaking to Lacey Hunt, Felix Zuloff, uh, Lynn Alden. You spoke to Lynn Alden. Uh, uh, Russell Napier, Steve Clapham. Howard Marks is coming back. He's bringing Joel Greenblatt with him. Um, then who, let's see, uh, 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 Mark Yusko is coming. And many, many... Uh, more big names are coming uh, to real for the next two weeks. So, uh, Ed, let's just let's just talk about this campaign. Um, what? Why? I, I honestly am just so excited about this. Why do you think that? Why are you so excited about this? Well, exactly what I was just saying. Putting it into the context of what I was talking about, because that's the twenty-four million dollar question. If the the coup, uh, secular stagnation, let's call it the balance sheet recession, because that's what he's famous for, is right on the money after uh, we have the reopening, the post-pandemic uh, new normal, then yes, everything is a bubble, potentially. But if we have the pop and we're off to the races and we're in a new normal that is positive uh, and we can get off the zero lower bound, we can get more productivity, then actually uh, people are discounting the, a brighter future in a very positive way, in the right way. And I think that we can have things that are, are have more to run. Last thing I'll say about the series that excites me is the degree to which any of the uh, people who we're talking to can talk about the impact of passive investing on this concept of bubbles. You know, how much uh, is passive uh, an impact on a market that's already gone up as much as it's gone? And how much can passive help us uh, to dent any sort of um, downturn that we might have in the markets? Or will it exacerbate you know, uh, those drawdowns? We, uh, I'd like to hear more about that because to me, those market structure issues are as important as the sort of, yeah, this market is a mania and it's overheated issues because that's what's underneath in the plumbing driving the whole narrative forward. Right. Uh, Ed, maybe you should ask Tom Steyer that, about passive investing. Yeah, actually, that might be interesting. That, that's an interview that I haven't done yet, so I might be able to, to ask him about that. Right. So, uh, so just to give viewers a sense, so tomorrow, Raul is going to be speaking to Mark Cuban. We filmed that interview already. I don't think either of us have seen it. The two ones I have seen are... Um, Joel Greenblatt and Howard Marks, and they ask each other, is this a bubble? And I, I felt so meek right before the interview was about to start. I was like, Howard, Joel, can you please just ask, is everything a bubble? Um, and so they, they really devoted their entire conversation to that very question. Um, and I, will, I, will, I won't spoil the results, but uh, I, think, I think that's going to be airing on Friday. That's not going to be one you want to miss um, to the folks at home. Um, 
And also, I saw Russell Napier speak to Steve Clapham, and they talked, uh, you know, analyzed bubbliciousness from another perspective, namely inflation. You know, mm. I think a lot of people who are in the financial uh, world know that Russell has switched his view. You know, he's been calling for deflation over the, over the past half decade. He's been extremely right. He's done a, a 360 or rather a 180. Um, and he thinks that serious inflation is going to come. And Steve Clapham asks, well, if that's the case, uh, what do you want to own? And the question, of course, is gold. But Steve says, hey, Russell, I don't, I don't you know, let's say I only buy your, that you're, there's a 30% chance that you're right. How could I invest my money so that I get a solid return where if there is inflation, you get that tailwind. But if there isn't inflation, you're not just stuck with um, you know, what some would call it a, a pet rock that uh, has no yield. So those are two interviews that air. I think that one airs on Wednesday. And then the one that you did with Lynn airs on Thursday. Um, Ed, I've got a question. So Lynn is extremely bullish on Bitcoin. Um, this is the, is, this is the is everything a bubble question. Did you ask Lynn, uh, is Bitcoin a bubble? I did not ask her that directly. I don't, you know, I don't even know if that the, that phrase came up exactly in that way. But I would say that uh, first and foremost, she doesn't think that Bitcoin's a bubble. She's bullish on Bitcoin, generally speaking. And to the degree that there's a bubble, generically speaking, really the question is: is not is it a bubble? It's whether or not interest rates will go up hard enough and far enough to cause people to rethink uh, this whole duration play that they're implicitly making by going into these companies with all of their earnings in the back half of their DCF. That's really what it's all about. You know, if, if you break it down into its real terms, when people ask, is it a bubble? The real question is, can you justify on a discounted cash flow basis uh, the numbers. And if you can't, if the economic scenarios don't play out that would say that this is a likely scenario, then yes, uh, stop, they're overvalued. Um, and then the whole bubble question is is yet uh, another question altogether. Right. Well, Ed, I'm sure that you and I could uh, explore this uh, for many more minutes on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. But uh, you know, unfortunately, everything must come to an end. However, Ed, I actually think what I want to do is I want to ask a question in the exchange. I want to say, hey, viewers at home, uh, is everything a bubble? What do you think? Are SPACs a bubble? Is, is, is uh, Peloton and Zoom and the growth stocks, is that a bubble? Is value the ultimate bubble? Is crypto, is crypto a bubble or is it the safe haven from everything uh, else, which is a bubble? Um, I, we want to hear your thoughts. So I'll, be, I'll post that question in the exchange. Yeah. And Jack, when you post the question in the exchange, can you post this question, which is what I was getting at implicitly there? There's overvaluation and then there's bubble, right? In some yeah. ways, there are two different things. The, the dynamics of a bubble, uh, the way that David Rosenberg explained it to me, is a bubble is something that can't go sideways. Bubbles have to pop. Uh, whereas overvaluation can be undone by things going sideways. So to me, a bubble is de facto such a high overvaluation that it's almost impossible for it not to implode because of the psychology driving uh, the market up. It's not just a case of extreme overvaluation. It's something else altogether. So I, think I, don't, I don't know if that makes sense. Oh, that makes perfect sense. I think that's a beautiful question. I think I heard uh, Jeremy Grantham say pretty much the exact same thing as David Rosenberg, that his definition of a bubble is when euphoria can only continue if there's more euphoria. You can't, you can't, there's no 
stasis. You have to go either continue the acceleration into the heavens or be swallowed uh, as you decline into the depths below. <laughs> and with, with that, with that great quote, Jack, I, I guess we'll end it right there. Thank you. That was great. All right, uh, Ed. Thanks so much. And to the people at home, uh, Ed and I, we like we mixed it up a little bit as we switch topics um, uh, uh, at a more rapid pace. Let us know what you think of that. All right. Thanks. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.